This is the Education Gadfly Show. Dress like a dad. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Chewbacca mom of Ed Reform, Robert oh, Pondicio. You didn't. I so did. Oh, that man. video is so joyous. It, it was, but this is just, for those who are, you know don't know this, why would 140 you? 140 million people on Facebook have yeah, watched this. Yeah, but you're just making fun of the way I dress, aren't you? I, I dress like a dad. Just say <laughs> it. I do admit that I did call Khaki's dad pants yesterday. I stand by that analogy. I wear your scorn like a badge of honor. Me we, and Chewbacca mom. I love her. Hey, she was fantastic, She's wasn't great. she? Can Phenomenal. you do your best Chewbacca voice? I, okay. Uh, nicely done, Robert. Thank you. All right. I think we can't top that. So let's move on to Pardon the Gadfly. Clara, what's up first? Robert, you're working on a piece about, quote, social justice warriors and education reform. What do you think social justice warriors should be cautious about? Um, I'm not sure that it's what social justice warriors, and I'm making air quotes uh, around social justice warriors, should be cautious about. It's about what ed reform um, should be cautious about. When I'm not at Fordham, uh, I teach in a charter school. Uh, I work alongside a lot of folks who who have a social justice orientation. Can we say that, Alyssa? I think we can. I'd okay. also point out that there are plenty of Fordham that, that also believe in social sure, justice. Sure, sure. You know, th- th- this movement attracts people for many, many reasons. Uh, but the, the piece that I'm writing that will be in the Catfly on Wednesday um, makes the case that uh, the so-called social justice warriors are really dominating education reform right now, really driving the conversation. And it's starting to alienate, aggressively alienate some folks on the right. Uh, what was interesting is I probably talked about a dozen different people who, if mm-hmm. I was going to say their names, you'd, you'd nod, you know who these people are. Um, household names in our work who all said more or less the same thing. <laughs> It's getting real uncomfortable. Um, New Schools mm-hmm. Venture Fund uh, two weeks ago uh, was uh, just basically w- there was a, there was a piece in Education Post mm-hmm. uh, that analogized um, New Schools Venture Fund to a Black Lives Matter rally, and this was not a criticism. This was this was praise. Now that's fine if that's your orientation, but look, there are some people in this work who are drawn to this work not for those reasons, but because they want to improve education mm-hmm. at large. They see it as a means of improving access to opportunity etc. And they feel a little left out. And that's an understatement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question that I now, I'm now raising is, is there a price to be paid for this ultimately within our movement? And I think of this, okay? Uh, schools still very much a state and local concern. Who's in control of, of state legislatures and governorships across this country, by and large? Republicans. Uh, one of the folks that I talked to made it quite clear that uh, <laughs> at the state and local level, uh, Republican-dominated legislatures uh, and governors are not interested in this. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they are, uh, this person and said, if this is what reformers lead with at the local level, they will lose. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know if that's true or it's not, but I think it's a question that's worth asking. Uh, we've seen a broad uh, movement to the left, uh, and some folks in this work are upset about it. I mean, really upset about it. And so the question I'm asking is twofold. One, does this start to hurt us legislatively? And two, maybe a little bit more out there with this question, but at what point does fixed structural racism become the new fix poverty. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you had two questions there and you had a lot to unpack. And I guess my first response is immediately that uh, school reform is something that is frequently in the past has been done to communities. And I think now there's, and I think now there's more of an effort to make it something that's done with communities for communities. And I think the fact that, you know, a lot of people in reform are, you know, white people. Sure. A lot of them are men. 
None of this is bad, but I think sometimes it's, you know, we can grow, we can change. Discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Agreed. What I think you're getting at, though, is, you know, what is the this question of what is the aim of education reform? And Correct. is everyone in the say, in the education reform movement who all do want better outcomes for kids asking the same questions? And should they be yeah, you or know, it's going be- with the same going towards the same goal? Agreed. I've actually raised this issue in a different context <laughs> when you look at the uh, education reform and say Trump voters. Mm -hmm. uh, Without a doubt, uh, the greatest successes of the ed reform movement to date have been what? Urban inner city charter schools. Very successful. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are also uh, schools that wildly underserve uh, low income, uh, not people of color in rural communities. I'll point out I went to one of those schools for 12 years. There you go. So the question I've asked in the past, and this is of a piece with this, is to what degree did has ed reform become a movement that's about low income people of color? And is that is that a sustainable movement for us? I mean, that's a good question. And I don't know the answer. I certainly do know that frequently in the past, historically, the kids who have had the worst outcomes and the fewest chances have been those that students who are low-income children of color in the cities. No doubt. Maybe we're having a reform movement that's addressing the problems that we've been addressing for 20 years, certainly in the last, or maybe we're addressing the problems that were 20 years ago. The Mm -hmm. rise of, you know, very rural poverty and some of the solutions that we're attempting around it, like digital learning, those are kind of newer revolutions. It didn't used to be that if you grew up in the middle of the Rust Belt or if you grew up in rural Iowa, where I grew up, being born into poverty was less of a barrier to economic mobility. 20 years ago than it is today in the rural areas. The economy has changed drastically. Problems there have changed drastically. So have we evolved to fix those problems yet? Not necessarily. Certainly we are, I think, still focused on the kids who traditionally have had the worst outcomes. Yep. Without, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. But the, the larger question that I think is is unanswerable at this moment, and I'm just going to watch this. I'm just fascinated mm-hmm. by it. Is the is, are, we, are, are we seeing something of a schism within this reform movement and is it irreparable? Uh, again, you get folks uh, mostly on the right who got into this line of work because they're interested in education and outcomes for all children. Mm -hmm. And then you do have, uh, you know, I I, I hesitate to use the phrase social justice warriors who have a very narrow focus and they tend to be not just uh, left-leaning, but extremely so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is this a bit of a legislative train wreck looking to happen? I think it might be. It certainly will be interesting to watch. Uh, Clara, question two. Kentucky was one of the early adopters of Common Core. Is new research suggesting that the standards are helping or hurting the achievement gap? Both and? Uh, Yeah. I think that's what we got to go with. So an analysis by the Heckinger Report came out uh, earlier this week that showed, I think, that students in Kentucky who had been taught under Common Core, all students had improved under Common Core instruction, which is great news. But minority students had only improved by about two points and white students had improved by four points. Mm -hmm. So because white students have been improving a little bit faster, the achievement gap is widening. Even though I think you and I will both agree the fact that kind of rising tide is raising all boats mm-hmm. is a good thing. Of course. When, when did we ever decide or when did we decide it was a bad thing? I mean, I know that this gets almost of a piece with the mm-hmm. previous conversation about uh, the social justice orientation. A lot of us got into this line of work mm-hmm. because of why? The achievement gap. Uh, so it's almost an impulse right now to say, well, if it's not closing the achievement gap, it must not be good. I mean, I think what this report truly does highlight, though, is that there are higher standards in place and those standards are hard. And to achieve those standards and 
to see truly sustained improvement in all students' achievement and in closing the achievement gap, we got to get to work on curriculum. We got to get to work on high quality instruction. Oh, you're just and those saying things. that to make me nod my head. I'm not saying that just to make you nod your head. I think it's very clear and it's borne out in the piece and it's borne out in practice and is borne out in what we're seeing in schools across the country that these aren't easy standards to attain right. and they take hard work. You can't just swap out the standards on your data board and be like, yeah. okay, my work is done. It takes a lot of a sustained practice. It takes a lot of smart teaching and it takes a lot of hard work to implement these standards rigorously. Are you and I agreeing on something? Alyssa? Sometimes it happens. Wow. Robert. I'm going to quit while I'm not too far. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to question three and see if we still agree. Charter schools have produced a mixed bag of results over the past 25 years. Why is it so hard to measure their effectiveness? I don't know that it's hard to measure their effectiveness. I think it's hard to get more of them to be effective. That's certainly true. I remember when I was coming into teaching and I knew I was teaching at a charter school, but I didn't know which charter school in D.C. because I came through Teach for America and all I had was the sector. Uh, I was talking to people who were a couple years ahead of me and they're like, you know, charter schools can either be here or here. And their fingers were about a foot apart. And district schools that you could be placed in are about here and here. And their hands were about an inch or two inches apart. And so Mm. there's these two poles of achievement in charter schools. And it's really tough to make that second pole, that lower pole, I think, act and look like the first pole, even though there's no shortage of people trying. Well, I think the interesting question is, what is the secret sauce in urban charter schools specifically that good urban charter schools well uh, the the, high performing we're if we're talking presumably as we are about the credo study which indicated Mm -hmm. that urban charter schools seem to be kind of the white hot locus of quality Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously there's going to be a range within that Mm -hmm. Uh, but is there some special secret sauce within that uh, little universe that makes them more effective Um, you know I still teach at a a Mm -hmm. so-called high performing no excuses charter school so I'm uh, my my bias is to believe that it has to do not just with curriculum uh, but with focus with school culture with that consistency absolutely so i think uh if the question is what is the special sauce in urban charter schools that makes them uh, the, the 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 magic spot in ed reform, mm-hmm. so to speak, could it be as simple as look, they started the furthest behind. It's easier to make growth when you're when you're at the lowest point. I think there might be some of that, but certainly the results that we're seeing from KIPP and Success and Yes Prep and all of the highest performing charter networks in the country. Um, they're outperforming the median. So I feel like if that were the only thing happening, if they're the farthest behind, so they're the easiest to catch up, you kind of see this like, averaging out at around the average. And I think something that's really important and you touched upon is kind of the focus and the consistency mm-hmm. in their both the way that they scale and the way that they approach teaching. It's a very, very focused practice. If you go into a KIPP, if you go into democracy prep, if you go into the other schools and some of the charter schools that count as charter schools and are charter schools that uh, I think blur this notion of effectiveness are certainly the online charter schools, which is kind of a whole nother boat um, oh, yeah. because it's very hard to have consistency and accountability and instruction when you're taking classes virtually. Um, so I think that certainly has something to do with it as well. Yep. Look, as you know, I'm a curriculum guy. But at the Wait, end what? of the day, I'm a, I'm a big fan of curriculum. I think huh. it makes a big difference. Tell me more about that sometime. However, <laughs> uh, I would say that that doesn't even matter as much as a cohesive school culture, mm-hmm. as a high expectations culture. Um, and, and that's what some of these quality urban charter schools are really delivering on. Mm-hmm. And it shows. That's true. All right. Well, that is all the time we have today for Pardon the Gadfly. Thank you, Clara. Up next, Amber's Research Minute. <laughs> And we're back with Amber's Research Minute. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you, Alyssa. 
So, major question in the office this week. Did you see Chewbacca, Mom? Of course. It see? was everywhere. <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, call him out. I had to show it to Robert oh, before this. Yes. I, know. I don't know why. I've seen it. I just think it was just that she's just such a, just kind of a giddy oh, person. She's so happy. I want to She's happy. You know, you know, yes. she's got kids, but she's stolen away to buy her little mask in the parking lot. You know, it yeah, just. Yeah. But guess what? Know. Her kids are mortified. Her. <laughs> You're a parent. You know this is true. They probably uh, are. But... I mean, she's a Star Wars fan. Clearly. Right. Yes. She's raising these kids to probably also be Star Wars fans. And there's oh, cause, a cause really big- fans ch- of the things your parents were fans of the list this week? She said, she said herself that her kids would probably try and steal the Chewbacca mask, right? Oh, that's right. And she just met J.J. Abrams, so I'm guessing her kids right. did too. And how That'll much go money has she made for this dang mask? Oh, right? I know. <laughs> she should get stuck. Yeah, seriously. Oh my God, it's awesome. Anyways, I'm guessing your research report does not involve Chewbacca this week? No, it does All not. Right. But what? it involves Dan Goldhaper's latest study. Um, yes, so he examined. How the, does he produce so many studies? I don't know. And and by the way, he He's actually a cyborg, he did not he? send Mike or I the study, which usually is pretty good about huh. that. Huh? Um, but we just ran across. I think we saw it Ned Week. But anyhow, if you're listening, Dan, send us your stuff and don't make us find it. Anyway, um, <laughs> make exa- us come up there, young man. Right. He examines Ed TPA, which I didn't know that much about. I don't know whether mm. you guys do or not. Um, but anyway, it's a performance-based, subject-based assessment. It's developed by Linda Darling-Hammond and other researchers at Stanford. It's administered to candidates, teacher candidates, student teachers, during their student teaching experience. You heard about this one, Robert? Mm-mm. Okay. Um, and it's the study predicts the likelihood that this test will um, predict employment in the workforce and value added measures of teacher effectiveness. Okay. Wow. So it looks at both those things. Okay. And then I'll give you a little background on it. Okay. So it's like the national boards because it's a portfolio based assessment. It okay. includes about three to five videotape lessons from the candidate. It includes lesson plans and student work samples and evidence of student learning. Um, and reflective commentaries. So very okay. much like the national boards, if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that at all. It's used in 600 teacher ed programs in 40 states. And passing it is a requirement in seven states for licensure. And okay. states determine the passing score. Hmm. And apparently it's just caught on like wildfire. I mean, hmm. I think it was only, I think it's only been out like a couple of years. Yeah, I didn't take it. Yeah, what not? It's, it's new. Um, it costs $300 to take. Mm-hmm. All right. And it can be re- retaken in part or in full, depending on how many individual tasks you fail. Okay. Um, it assesses three areas, planning, instruction, and assessment. Okay. And includes 15 scoring rubrics. Ooh. Seems like a lot. Your total max score is 75. All right. So all okay. that out of the way, because everybody's just dying to know what is a TPA, right? Now the database, uh, about 2,300 teacher candidates in mm-hmm. Washington state. They took this test in the 2013-14 school year. Okay. For the most part, these are the students who took it for the first time. They mm-hmm. didn't, these aren't the retakes. Um, all right. Uh, what else do I need to tell you before I actually get to the findings? They link it to other licensure data. And for a subset of teachers who taught math or reading grades five through eight, they also matched up to their students' test scores. Okay. Findings. Oh, I'm finally there. Oh, wow. wait. Sorry. Oh, one findings. question. Oh, I've forgotten, forgotten all about that. <laughs> so is it a re- taking the test a requirement by the districts or a requirement by the ed schools to graduate? It can be both. So okay. the state can require it mm-hmm. and the ed schools can require it too. So okay. if the state 
requires it. They they set the cut score, but I think the program, and I may be getting this wrong, Alyssa, but I think the program can choose to accept that cut score or not. Okay. Um, I think it differs, like all these different rules differ by the state. Okay. okay. But he only looked at it in the Washington context. Okay. Just Amber, Amber Chalice, did it make any difference? <laughs> nerdy wormholes, I'm sorry. Teachers who perform better on ed, TPA are more likely to be employed. In the public schools in Washington well, next year. So. so let's hope so. Um, I mean, it makes sense because in some cases, again, it's. Um, yeah, no, we only want the teachers who failed. Right. <laughs> uh, specifically, the teachers who passed it at the cut score are 15.2 percentage points more likely to enter the workforce compared to those who took the same test and failed it at the cut score. They also find that candidates who pass at the cut score, I always have to say at the cut score because that's what they measure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now I lost my place. Oh, they're more effective in reading instruction. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Specifically, students assigned to those passing teachers scored 0.25 standard deviation higher, all else equal. Then do students assigned to teachers who failed the ed TPA. Okay. Yet. It's a reasonably decent effect size. It is. Good for you. That is true. That's true. <laughs> uh, yet the test is not predictive of teacher effectiveness in math. What? That's yeah, what weird. Well, it just seems random. Well, they hypothesize. That also seems the opposite of what I would assume. Right, exactly. Well, they hypothesize that ed TPA, because remember I t- explained what kind of test it was, right? Mm-hmm. That it may be focusing on candidates' writing capacities. Oh, I see. In oh. part, which are more likely related to a teacher's ability to teach, to teach reading and math, right? Huh. Because you've got all this stuff they got to pull together and they have these reflective commentaries. It's writing. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, well, wait, I don't mean to have you go back no over problem. the criteria, but do they differentiate between the candidates on uh, math and, and ELA ability? What do you mean differentiate? In other words, the the, the, the the various tasks, the 15 rubrics, how many of them are math? Oh, yeah, they're it? all subject specific. Okay. So I think there are 27 of them. So okay. they all... But oh your score God. is a single score in the aggregate. Right. So you're, if you disaggregate for math or ELA, are these folks stronger in one or the other? Does that explain it? So I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I don't actually think. Dan, that, let us know. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. actually think that they looked at because they're only taking an ed TPA in their subject. They're not taking oh, an see, ed TPA oh. in both subjects, right? Okay, so it's subject. So it's so then why are they? Yeah, like there are math. literally twenty-seven of these things. So okay. you have elementary. There are all these STEM okay. subjects. But think if you're graduate school. What do the graduate school exam right. might be able to take, right? How many of those do they have? A million. Yeah, okay. So they're 20. I think, I think he said 27. Okay. Um, all right. So that's the bottom line. And, and I just kind of thinking, okay, what do I make of this? What do we think about this? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing is that, you know, it's good, right? That we are actually trying to measure teacher effectiveness in more ways than mm-hmm. test scores, right? Mm-hmm. We want to do that. But at the same time, I think we've got research that shows some of these other teacher licensure tests, like for Massachusetts has been held up right. as a pretty strong licensure test. I don't know much about it more than people seem to hold it up all the time. Um, I think the reputation is that it's more content base like it's more it's measuring content knowledge more than pedagogy okay so i guess you know at the end of the day i was thinking you know these tests even though they're subject specific we don't know entirely if they're measuring a teacher's content knowledge or pedagogy right, right? and both those things and, and we know there's a ton of research that shows that content knowledge especially and this is heather hill's stuff and other folks especially in science and math mm-hmm. um that is linked pretty strongly to teacher effectiveness so hmm. all that to say that you know, I don't want to give teachers a million tests, right. but I like the idea of having a test like this and some of the more traditional 
content-based multiple choice exams too. It also doesn't quite sound like a test. It seems more like kind of a capstone project or something to just kind of summarize and show off your abilities. They call it a portfolio assessment. Even though when we think of assessment, we think of like a traditional test, but um, yeah. So there you have it. All right. It's really interesting. Did they do any links between the school districts and what kind of students they were getting? Uh, they didn't. Um, they did have a little bit about, um, you know, certain types of teachers were more or less likely to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't go into great detail about that because I don't think they had great demographic data on some of these variables. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I don't know. I, I'm with you. I like, I just had not heard Robert about this ed TPA. I mean, the one that I took, oh my gosh, back in the day, do you remember? You and I probably took the same one. What I, was I took the New York took State the assessments, but my, my grad school of education, which was uh, Mercy College, made me do something that sounds very, very Yeah, what came before Praxis? That's I, crazy, but that's the one I took. Whatever came before Praxis. I don't remember. All I remember, I took the Praxis, but I took it for early childhood. And I remember I had to... Um, identify which country was Ireland on a map. And that's the wow. only memory I have. You from took that elementary and elementary ed? Early childhood ed. Early childhood. Mm-hmm. Okay. They did say in here that you were more likely to be employed if you um, took a STEM test than mm-hmm. an elementary, which makes sense given teacher shortages exactly. in STEM. Mm-hmm. So. That is not a surprising finding. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not. But anyway, more good research. Always like that um, we're trying to figure out how to make teacher ed programs even better. Even, so. even better. Well, better. Even, <laughs> I do like the idea of it being comparable across schools. Certainly, you mentioned, Robert, you did one at your school. I know my graduate program had me put together a portfolio, but I have no mm-hmm. idea um, if it, how. Did you have to do videos? They no. filmed me. It was brutal to watch. <laughs> it was also like, it was no, my no. first, it was my first year teaching. And true story, I went back to my old school a couple of weeks ago because it was Teacher Appreciation Week to bring my former aide cookies. And they finally got around to appreciating mm-hmm. you? Hey, I, and they appreciated the cookies very much, but I walk in and I'm like, Hey, and everyone's like, you look different. And eventually I'm like, well, you know, I got 10 inches chopped off my hair and it turns out it was in fact that I looked like I had slept and I had makeup on and a fourth grader pointed this out. Nice. So those videos were pretty brutal to watch. Ouch. Yeah. Nothing like uh, the honesty of children, but yes, yeah, we had videos. Indeed. We had, um, like samples of student work. I had to submit some lesson plans, but I don't know how it compared to yeah. other I don't people. I how this is being scored. I was digging around the paper and even on the website and I don't know, is it, you know, a group of teachers? Like, you know, who knows? The scoring on this is a whole nother ball of wax. But promising, certainly very interesting. Yes. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today for Amber's Research Minute. Thank you, Amber. Sure thing. All right. And that's all the time we have for the entire Gadfly show this week. Till next week. I'm Robert Pondicio. And I'm Alyssa Schwank for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.